I more interested in, in, in cultures that had had a relationship with land. I felt like Western cultures didn't. But when I began to really dig into my ancestral roots, I realized that's not true. You know, I Gaelic pre-Christian Gaelic culture is so, and Celtic culture has such rich earth-based cosmology. And so I began to go back to Scotland and, and study that. And it really, something happened to me. Like I, I just felt so much more grounded and like almost like plug it plugged in. When I, when I stepped on that land, I just felt like a, a surge of energy, almost like I plugged into my ancestral roots. Mm-hmm. That chapter also talks about healing my relationship with my father. You know, so there are these more ancient root systems that we come from and can connect to, but then there's, you know, we also have these disconnects from different family members or, or root systems we need to mend. Welcome to the Revelation Project Podcast. I'm Monica Rogers, and this podcast is intended to disrupt the trance of unworthiness and to guide women to remember and reveal the truth of who we are. We say that life is a revelation project, and what gets revealed gets healed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Revelation Project podcast. I'm with a very special guest today that I'm so proud to bring her work to this conversation. Her name is Vanessa Shakur. Vanessa is an herbalist, a visual artist, rewilding educator, former pro boxer, environmental activist, and founder of Sacred Warrior, a multidisciplinary educational and experiential school offering plant medicine, wildlife conservation, and meditation through courses, workshops, and retreats with a diverse group of teachers. Sacred Warriors Rewilding Retreats are in partnership with the Wolf Conservation Center in New York, the Jaguar Rescue Center in Costa Rica, and Allidale Wilderness Reserve in the Scottish Highlands. Vanessa has shared her work as a speaker at the United Nations, Brown University, and the Muhammad Ali Center, and as a visual artist in galleries from Tribeca to Chelsea. She lives in Western Massachusetts, and she teaches around the world. And today, we're here to talk about her incredible new book called Awakening Artemis, Deepening Intimacy with the Living Earth and Reclaiming Our Wild Nature. Hi, Vanessa. Hi. Very excited to be I'm doing well. I uh, So for our listeners, I found out about Vanessa's work through my former business partner, Andrea Willits, and she actually sent me your book for my birthday, which was absolutely amazing. And I have enjoyed reading it so much. And I... I don't even know where to start. I love it so much, but I, I even love the artwork. And by the way, did you do that? Because I'm reading that you're an artist. You did? I did. Oh. Yes, I did. I illustrated all the plans, which was an interesting practice because my art has become very abstract. Mm-hmm. It had been years since I had attempted to draw from life. So that was another way of building intimacy with the plants is really, really sitting with them and studying them and so, yeah, so I drew all of the plants as well. Unbelievable. Well, I absolutely love your book, and I don't say that lightly. Thank you. 
Thank you so much. Yeah, I really do. So I I would love to just really start out by helping our listeners kind of understand more about what your inspiration was for writing the book. But let's first start with the title, Awakening Artemis, because I feel like it's so potent. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I feel there's so many layers to the title. The first, probably most obvious one to people is is the goddess Artemis, who is the Greek moon goddess. She's a huntress, a defender of nature and of women and of the young. And she seeks vengeance on anyone who violates any of the life under her care. And when I was researching the book and Artemis, I became so fascinated by the fact that where mythical guardians of the land were honored and and where people believed in them, the land was protected. So these so-called mythical guardians became literal guardians of the land. Um, because, for example, where people believed Artemis kind of ruled mountainsides or waterways, people would not dare harm the land under her watch. So for me, Awakening Artemis is not just awakening the guardians of the land within us, but it's also awakening those earth-based cosmologies that that we find throughout cultures, which we've lost. You know, the land has lost a lot of many of her stories. So there's that aspect of Artemis. I've always identified with her as an archetype, the wild woman, you know, she's sort of the the archetype of the activist, the wild woman who stands up for what she believes in. And one of my favorite plants that begins the book is mugwort, whose botanical name is Artemisia vulgaris. So that this plant that has been so instrumental in helping me heal is also named for Artemis. So there's just so much potency in that title for me. And I just, I just love the idea of awakening Artemis within each of us, you know, awakening these fierce guardians of land. And as an environmental activist, I just feel like that's what we need to do right now. I couldn't agree more. It's like, that's what we need to do right now. And I love, I was actually, I always geek out over words, but love how, right, potent potential is these words that are sometimes nestled into each other and you start to understand, you know, the impact of as as women, I think what we're in is a time of not only great revelation, but a time of really stepping into our full potential. Mm-hmm. And there's that potency, I think, that we're all exploring as we are doing what I call the process of unbecoming from all of the social conditioning. Yeah, I just, I absolutely love as well, just the way that you've weaved Awakening Artemis kind of through the book. And actually, you had mentioned mugwort, and that might be a great place to dive a little bit more deeply too, because I think the way that you really start to express and explain the relationship that you have with that particular plant and why um, will also tell a bit of the story. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one thing I should mention is that, you know, as an herbalist, I've really come to value the just the history and lore and and life of so-called weeds and common plants, the plants that are have always been there right under my feet that I, like many people, were blind to. You know, I think that, like you said, the power of words, right? Just calling something a weed and, and seeing something as being a weed 
just shifts our perception of the land around us, you know, like, oh, it's just a weed. And when I, when I began to study herbalism, those are the first plants I learned about. And it completely changed my perception of the land around me. And at the time I was living in Brooklyn and mugwort is growing through the cracks in the sidewalk, growing throughout Prospect Park. But this plant also grows throughout the world in temperate regions, but there's, there's species of Artemisia throughout the world in, in all different environments. And so this is a, like a presence, right? If you think about it in that way, this like ubiquitous, prolific, tenacious presence in nature that keeps coming back. It's relentless, grows via rhizome and grown these like dense thickets between often between like wild and domesticated spaces, almost like has the energy of being a protective plant in a way. So when I was when I began working with mugwort, I would sit with a plant. One of my my first one of my first herbalism teachers, Robin Rose Bennett, had me and all all of the students ally with a particular plant for an entire year. And what that meant, and mugwort was my plant, is spending time with a plant, working with a plant in all the different ways that you could possibly work with a plant and its and its medicine, and doing so before looking it up. So, you know, not being influenced by what other people say is true. You know, I really wanted to experience the plant and its medicine firsthand without being, you know, yeah, just too influenced by but what the plant's medicine is supposed to do to me. So I've I've come to view Mugwort's medicine as a medicine of self-confrontation. And I begin the book with a car accident that fractured my back and my neck. And I see that sort of as my initiation onto my path of healing. You know, as a child, I was very, very connected to nature, as I feel many of us are. And and then as a teenager, I I really wanted to fit in and got away from myself. I began to disconnect from my body because of past trauma. And the car accident when I was 16 really just broke everything open and I was forced to sit with myself. And while I didn't know mugwort at the time, the experience was an experience of self-confrontation. I couldn't move literally. And so I was confronted with myself. I had no means of escape. And one of the ways that mugwort works as a medicine, it's a potent and what's called an anerogen. So a plant that enhances the realm of dreaming and helping us see what we need to heal through the realm of dreams, which is something I could speak to more. Also a bitter helping us to digest bitter experiences, as well as helping our literal digestive system, a plant that moves stagnant energy as an amenagogue. So helping us, you know, if there's like tension in a reproductive system in particular, where we're not menstruating, this was used by midwives to induce labor, calms the nervous system, which is obviously you know, something that gets hyper-stimulated or become hyper-vigilant when we have after trauma. So this, this plant really, really addressed a lot of the things I was grappling with when I, when I learned about the plant. And I revisited past trauma when I began working with mugwort and cleared a lot of that out. So just like the, just like the, the potency of the word Artemis, mugwort holds a lot for me and, you know, and symbolically as a plant that is, that's really helped me move through move through trauma, but also just keeps me in check in a way. And the nice thing about it is that this plant grows everywhere around me. So there's this recognition everywhere I go, this reminder everywhere I go. Yeah, I'm here. I'm with you. Yeah. And there's that. I love too what you were saying about 
that confronting energy, right? But also there's a there I'm also hearing a tenderness there. There's a way that you're held with it. Yeah. That that also has this this compassion. And mm-hmm. I actually made a note here specifically because I found it really interesting, like that it's used to release tension that may have accumulated in an effort to protect us, to protect yes. ourselves. And that, that's one of these areas where I know women specifically, I'm sure men too, but where women will complain a lot of a lot of tension in the hips, in the shoulders, in the neck region. And so, you know, it's like mugwort, you know, like who knew? And that there's all of these other applications. So tell me more about the dreams, because I've recently been really, really kind of geeking out on how incredible the dream world is and how, again, there's all of these ways that we have been taught to meh, disregard the dream world. And in fact, I'll never forget my ex-husband would, it's so funny because we, he will still kind of like use some of the terms that his, his very Southern family used growing up. And one of them was, don't tell your dreams before breakfast, because of course, like you were going to forget them. And it, it, I just found that fascinating. It, I love when my kids come out of their bedrooms and they're like, oh my God, I had this crazy dream last <laughs> night. And I'm like, tell me about it. Yeah. And I've just started really paying attention to my dreams. And uh, babies show up in my dreams all the time lately. Like I huh. maybe 10 different dreams with babies in them. Interesting. I know. So I'm just paying attention in a whole new way. Tell me more about when you said I can talk more about dreams. What what is there? I'm curious. Well, I from in my own experience, I've always had very vivid dreams as as long as I can remember. So I've just been fascinated by them. You know that they come through in stories. There's storytelling. You know, and uh, so I just found them to be an amazing creative resource. And then when I had the car accident, I began having nightmares. And it was like, it was almost like all of this, like, I, you know, like I mentioned, I fractured my back and my neck and, and it was almost like as though I ruptured, like all of this tension I was holding, I was tamping down these experiences I didn't want to see. And it was almost like everything burst open. Mm-hmm. That's literally what it felt like. And then I was just having nightmare after nightmare after nightmare after nightmare. And so that was another kind of, I almost had to begin to work with my dreams in order to get a handle on them. So I began to write them down. I started getting books on on dreaming and lucid dreaming to to gain control of the dream realm in a way. But also I I realized, and again, this, you know, when I was 16, I didn't realize everything that was going on. A lot of it is in retrospect. Of course, yeah. That my dreams were showing me things I needed to see in order to heal. And I when I began working with my dreams, I began to grapple with memories of sexual assault and and things I just had pushed away and forgotten. So my dreams have been kind of my my guides in a way. Like you need to look at this, you need to deal with this. And until you do that, this is just going to be, you're going to be disconnected from some aspect of yourself. So that period of time showed me the value of dreaming and the relationship between dreaming and healing. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because I'm open to things, but I'm also a skeptic. And when I, I heard about Mugwort as a dreaming ally, because I've had such vivid dreams and I'm fascinated by the dream realm, 
I was excited to try it, but I was also skeptical. I'm like, oh, how can a plant affect your dream life? But this plant does. And I've seen it over and over and over again as a teacher, you know, with with colleagues, with other students, and again, people who are skeptical of it. And the way that this appeared for me was was showing me another layer of the trauma. I thought I was done processing it. I, you know, I have so many, like in, in my bio, you mentioned all the things that I've done in my life. To me, all of those things, whether it's visual art, boxing, writing, those have all been methods of healing. Mm-hmm. And boxing was a huge methods of healing in terms of reclaiming my body, getting anger out. And then it was just like one thing led to another, led to another. And I was like, oh, let me see if, you know, I'm going to turn pro. But initially it was just a method of releasing trauma in a way. It was also a spiritual practice for me. It was, I really, it was just, you have to absolutely be in the present moment, you know, when you're boxing. So, you know, all of these things have been healing modalities for me. And, you know, and so going back and circling back to dreaming, then dreams always show up and show me what it is I need to look at. And, and there's many plants that can, can be useful in the dream realm, just not just mugwort, but they're just incredible healing tools. And just, I, I think they're, like you said, they're incredibly valuable and we often dismiss them, but I think they, they show us sometimes things we don't want to see, but just what's, what's, you know, under those like many layers of, of consciousness. Well, and I think when you're actively seeking healing modalities, it's not like you think about dreaming as one of those healing modalities. And so I was really paying attention when you were writing about how you would just put the tincture by your bed and right before bed, drop a couple of drops under your tongue and go into the dream world. And I'm like, even though I remember you know, these babies that are showing up in the dreams, which is, again, makes me so curious. And I, you know, what I've read is that they're about, in some cases, a new creation and that kind of nurturing that you have to do with your new creations. But I think there's other things that I'm so disconnected to. And oftentimes, most times, in fact, I wake up and I don't remember anything. So I'm excited to to start using it. I also picked up on a quote in this mugwort chapter that said, where there is a scar, there is a door. Mm, that is from Women Who Run With The Wolves. Yeah. I just, I just loved that. It gave me the, ch- the chills. And then, and then you go into, and so for our listeners, what I love so much about this book is how Vanessa talks about each chapter is kind of a relationship to a plant and what the plant brought her in terms of healing and the different things that that plant represents. And then she can have a series of different revelations within each chapter around that specific plant or what that plant represents. So I was just geeking out over the whole thing, but (laughs) I loved then the next chapter because for me, again, like what I loved about the yew, the yew tree, am I pronouncing that correctly? And, And it's all about belonging. And I loved what you had said about how Again, like this is where 
you started to kind of realize as you were working with this particular plant that your root systems were... Now, when we think of root systems, we think of trees. But when we think about ourselves as human beings, it's like, what are our root systems? Who are our ancestors? Where do we really come from? You know, what land are we occupying? All of the ways that that actually accounts for our sense of belonging in the world. So I would love if you could share a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So the first one thing I want to mention too, is the first section of the book, the first five chapters really deal with these big themes I felt were were important to address. And then the second part of the book really is more chronological. And so as an herbalist, I I felt it was really important to dig into my own ancestral roots of traditional medicine in order to really practice plant medicine from a place of integrity. And I became an environmental activist really because I had a deep grief around just the way that our species treats the earth. Obviously, not everyone, but there was a sense of just, yeah, I, I I just, I felt it as, as a kid, you know, and there was no place really to put it within Western culture, at least, you know, I, I didn't think so. And so when I started to explore herbalism, I started to learn about my ancestral roots because a lot of the plants I was working with, so-called weeds are plants that grow um, in Scotland, for example, which is a large part of my ancestry. And like many people here, the so-called United States are a mix of cultures, which I am too, but the majority of my my background is Scottish. And I began to feel really, really drawn to Scotland. And I began to realize like, oh my gosh, I'm so disconnected from my root systems, from my ancestral roots. I didn't, I dismissed them, honestly, you know, I didn't think that they were important growing up. I more interested in, in, in cultures that had had a relationship with land, I felt like Western cultures didn't. But when I began to really dig into my ancestral roots, I realized that's not true. It, you know, I Gaelic pre-Christian Gaelic culture is so, and Celtic culture has such rich earth-based cosmology. And so I began to go back to Scotland and, and study that. And it really something happened to me. Like I, I just felt so much more grounded and like almost like plug it plugged in. When I, when I stepped on that land, I just felt like a, a surge of energy, almost like I plugged into my ancestral roots. Mm-hmm. That chapter also talks about healing my relationship with my father. You know, so there are these more ancient root systems that we come from and can connect to, but then there's, you know, we also have these disconnects from different family members or, or root systems we need to mend. And that was the big one for me that I needed to reconnect to and and heal. Mm -hmm. And so it was interesting because I actually hadn't planned to write about the new tree, but I was inspired to, because when I was really reconnecting with my father again, and we've had moments of reconnection throughout the years, but this was a really pivotal reconnection. And we had come together because my aunt had recently died of cancer and the yew tree, Taxol from the yew tree is used in chemotherapy treatments. And her memorial service was in Cambridge around Harvard Square. And so my, my father and I were walking around Harvard Square and 
And all these yew trees are, were like clipped into these rectangular hedgerows. And I had just come back from Scotland where I, I had visited the 14 gall yew, which is said to be about 5,000 years old. This like ancient, ancient, ancient tree that's really connected to Celtic and Gaelic culture. And then here are these trees that we like clip into these hedgerows. And I, it just, it just, all of it hit me at once. You know, this, this, the way we treat these ancient trees, how disconnected we are from the symbolism of these ancient beings that were really revered in, in Celtic culture and Gaelic culture and many cultures, um, Native American culture as well, especially the Pacific U. And it just really hit me like a ton of bricks, you know, like the sadness of, of what we've lost. And so I, I, I started that chapter then and um and really wove that all together and you know how i i was just like really digging into like how do we how can we feel a sense of belonging when we are many of us are disconnected from our ancestral roots when we're living on land that is you know as settlers you know and and grappling with all of the trauma around that how do we find a sense of belonging and relationship with land and so you know, I don't have the answers, but but I just know that I'm I'm still on that journey of healing, and I feel as I feel many of us are. And I shared some some stories from my students and connecting with our ancestral roots, even if we're not living on the land of our ancestors, can be incredibly healing. Yeah, and I'm just learning that too. I'm very very kind of in that part of my journey right now. And mm. in this chapter, you also talk a lot about decolonizing. And also we've throughout is kind of the history of how we got here. Yeah. And one thing that, you know, I know you're quoting someone in this, but I was, again, like so drawn to some of these questions that you pose, as well as some of the um, people that you quoted. And one, I think, was John Donahue when you said, when you quoted him and said, when you steal a people's language, you leave their soul bewildered. And the same when we colonize like all of these ways that we think about colonization or we don't think about colonization and how they've impacted us in this way that actually like we if we look at them through the lens of restoring our broken roots and rewilding our ancestral landscapes it's like oh, yes you know like that when you start to see it's like I often like will turn things on their heads and I love how you did that like looking at these really kind of it can be so heady but you kind of bring it back to earth everything that you know is kind of like gets lost up in the head region which I love so much because it really anchors in like oh yeah and the other thing you said which I loved was you were talking about the yew trees because, again, when something has been shaped into beautiful to us, right, some aesthetic in the modern world, it's like if we don't, and we don't even know the names of them, first of all, Yes. how do we notice that they exist? If we don't notice that they'll exist, how will we know when they're missing? I was like, yeah, mic drop. And then also that when we name, we notice. Yeah, that powerful way that naming things brings them alive within us. And that animating force of naming something that that again, with language, I think of the logos, I think about creation, we're, we're kind of coming into that awareness now. And so I just, I just loved that so much. It's just, it's, 
obviously all of my listeners can see that I really love this book so much. Like I cannot (laughs) wait for you all to get your hands on it. And then you go into the apple tree and the apple's connection to the goddess. And by the way, I've been allergic to apples. I just found out and I'm like, oh my gosh. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but with hives, with an oral allergy. And of course, my connection to the goddess, it's all so perfect. So I'm like, I got to dig into that deeper. Like, I just had so many revelations while I was reading this book. So what I want to talk about next, and you pipe in too, because you can take this wherever you wish. I'm fascinated. I want to know more from you about, like, tell me a little bit more just about what you are positing or positioning for us to see as what's possible in not only reading your work in this book, but also like how to remember our relationships to and our interconnectedness with all of these things around us, all of these plants and minerals and animals. Yeah, I mean, the underlying mission of the book and also of Sacred Warrior um, that you mentioned in in my bio is healing the illusion of separation from nature. Mm-hmm. And when we're animals, you know, sometimes we we often place ourselves above other animals, but ultimately we're animals. We're part of nature, and we're destroying our own environment. It's absolutely insane. And I, you know. It's incredible because I, I like I mentioned, you know, I worked as an environmental activist for many years, and 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 I had a disconnect from land until I learned about the the common plants and the weeds and their potency and and their role in the ecosystem. I think just as much as the book is about all the things you said in my journey of healing, it's also about relationships. And I've come, I believe, and I've seen this in my own life and the way that developing this relationship with the land and also of the ecosystem that is my body, which I see as in a, a, just part of the whole, just how much more content I feel, um, how much, you know, when I, when I, as I built relationship with the land, I fall in love with the land and that moves me to want to take better care of the land. And I just see that in others. And I just feel like if we, if we all come to that place, it's a very, it's, it's incredibly complicated, but it's also very simple. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll ideally cease to spray these so-called weeds, you know, ground ourselves in our environments, cease to, you know, try and tame nature, creating these like carpet-like lawns that are absolutely toxic and grow our own food. You know, there, there, there are all these things that can completely change everything in our relationship with the land and the health of our environment and our own health and well-being that we have the capacity to do right now. And so we don't have to necessarily, you know, create these all these new technologies to heal climate change and nature. We have to come back to the simplicity of many of our indigenous practices, no matter where we're from, like to this place of harmony with nature. So that is my my hope, you know, that we we remember that and that we remember that all of our ancestors practiced plant medicine. All of our ancestors at one point or another had this harmonious relationship with land. And that is my, that's what I would love for us to come back to. Yeah. You know, I was thinking recently, I have a couple people in my life, I think we all do, that are like 
climate change isn't real. And I'm like, that's not the point, actually. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's like, it is and it's not. Like, it's more what, it's like, regardless of whether or not you believe that that is happening or not, just look (laughs) at how we treat each other, how we treat nature, how we treat animals, our, our fractured relationship with our food, our our surroundings, it's like, it's tragic, right? And so I know I'm always kind of like, I have to like, I actually have to like, really contain myself. Do you have a plant medicine for that? By the way, when I know, like, one of your friends, Matthews <laughs> is like your triggers or your teachers, right? And I'm like, trigger, yeah. you know, like, I get so triggered when people say that, because I'm like, <laughs> I just, it's hard, really upsetting. Yeah. Because here's the thing for me is the connection for me is the feminine. It's like how we treat the feminine is like, it's so how, like, how do you not see that this is all interconnected? Mm -hmm. But, you know, um, I'm just over here doing my own revelation project. I won't do, I won't do theirs for them. So, yeah, it's it's hard, you know, and. And that's why, I, you know, I go going back to what I was saying about relationship, you know, that there's a ripple effect in everything that we do. I talk about wolves a lot in the book because I've worked closely with the Wolf Conservation Center and I've always had a real affinity for wolves. And, you know, to me, like they're almost like just like weeds, the epitome of wild nature. And there's been this such a fraught relationship with them. But there's so much evidence that shows that when you take these keystone predators out of an ecosystem, there's this there's this unbelievable impact that that totally d- just affects everything else. There's an imbalance of the predator-to-prey ratio. There's more disease. The overpopulation of deer will decimate an ecosystem. You know, you take one thing, I think it was John Muir who said, you know, I remember the exact quote, but just like you take one thing out of an ecosystem that is instrumental, meant to be there. It can be a tiny, tiny creature and everything is disrupted. So, yeah, I mean, we, it's crazy to me that we don't think relationally and see ourselves as being interconnected to all of nature. It impacts our health and well being too. You know, we're not above, not separate, you know, and I, the, the, the fear of, of, to me, of creating so-called new technologies to, to grapple with these issues is, is when we can still continue this disconnect on treating the earth as a resource because we have this technology to clean the air. You know, we have to stop thinking of the earth as a resource and thinking of the earth as a living being, which is what the earth is. That's right. That we depend on to survive. So, Yeah. Yes. I also have written here, like, I want to see how beautiful the world is, weeds and all. I often talk about this idea of we miss, we miss how beautiful life is if we're not willing to incorporate the wild, the messy, the untamed, and that it all gets to belong. And that we're really, it's like that expression of like cutting off your nose to spite your face. It's so, it's so essential for us. And I think too, you point to this way that we've got this very civilized vision of what beauty is. And in the Western world, we have caused a great deal of suffering, you know, in the name of beauty. And that really got me thinking about just how twisted out of shape that idea of beauty is. And even, 
even for women. Oh, absolutely. How even the beauty industry in itself is, you know, there's this way, and again, I, I, this was the chapter, I think, right after Eyebright, which was all about perception. But it was, it was like, wow, it's so true that we, I remember, you know, in working with women for the first eight years, I did a lot of work with kind of this reclamation through imagery. And it was this idea of having a woman witness herself, but she wasn't allowed to look in the mirror. She, you know, like none of that stuff that has us kind of like leave our bodies and get back into our heads. But it, it was this idea of like claiming beauty of like knowing it when you see it and redefining it. And that when a woman got particularly emotional, that I call that beauty, that that's where beauty shows up for me. And just really kind of questioning all the ways that we've been taught to see it. Yeah. And then recognizing that it's got so many other unseen things to appreciate and to cultivate and to nurture. And so all of this is just so eloquent and beautiful as you write about it. So where would you like to take this next? Because I could just like talk to you all day. (laughs) well you know just something you said i'll just you know want to comment on it you know the you know how you said the i forget exactly the way you said it but life is beautiful weeds and all but i also think that weeds are beautiful Mm -hmm. you know i yeah some of the most beautiful flowers actually that i've heard and somebody has been like oh that's a weed and i'm like that's beautiful but what is a weed? You know, I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, there, we separate this tame, there's a taming of the landscape without, you know, or, and cultivated landscape versus the, the wild landscapes that often are the healthiest, you know, like I write about in the eyebrow chapter, just how the ab- abandoned lots in New York city and in other urban areas are some of those absolutely gorgeous places. They're, you know, uh, before seeing the world in this way again, I might have thought of them as being, oh, oh, it's overgrown. But those spaces are often teeming with pollinators. There's diversity on the land and in the species of plants that are there. Sometimes they're some of the healthiest landscapes because they're not manicured and sprayed and, and you know, tr- trying to be, you know, look a certain way. They're gorgeous, you know. So when nature is allowed to do her thing, there's often so much diversity, but of course, you know, we brought brought land to a place in many places where the soil and and has been become so depleted that we have to interfere and participate in healing the land at this point um, in some places. But in other places, that's not the case, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and weeds provide off so-called weeds. Many of them provide a service to the land. So not only are they beneficial for bodies. And again, I should also just note that you don't want to harvest plants from places that are, you know, where, where the land is being healed up and they're drawing up toxins from the soil. So you have to be very, very mindful of where you harvest plants and how, but they're not only beneficial for our bodies, but beneficial for the earth too. And so through the work that I've done, I've become more and more interested in, in ecology and not just the plants as medicine for me, but plants as medicine for the earth and the relationship of plants to each other 
which is, you know, the, the core of like regenerative agriculture. Like how do you plant plants in such a way that they thrive without so much interference with us or permaculture or, or you know, or many in, indigenous practices of, of farming or tending to the land, you know? So, so yeah, I just, I, I think of everything relationally now instead of, and allowing them to thrive without us instead of this taming and controlling and this very limited idea of what is beautiful and what isn't. You know, and maybe that, maybe that's also a great place to get curious is how can we and my listeners, how, how can I participate more in healing the earth? Because I loved how you said that. It's like we do have to participate now. Mm-hmm. In it's like our like Mother Earth is is a force, and we've actually created situations that I think call us to resolve and rectify and help the Earth heal. So I wondered if maybe you could tell us more about how how we can participate. You know, I I think I think it, you know many healing traditions always speak to. The, like starting with yourself first, you know, starting with your own healing and then the healing of your family. And so in relation to the, to the earth, like starting with the land outside your door, you know, often, you know, and I, I think it's really valuable to give to wildlife organizations and things like that. But what is your relationship with, if you do have a yard with your, with the land around you, start there. You know, are you trying to tend and to create a lawn? And it, it, in some neighborhoods, that's mandatory to tame your landscape. I think educating, education is vital. If you can begin to shift the relationship with the land outside your door, educate your neighbors, you know, talk to, just really find out what the policies are in the town. There are many people I know who are, who do have really good practices of land stewardship who are giving over their land to conservation organizations so the land is protected. So I think starting with the land outside your door, if you're in an urban area, you know, getting involved in and just really, whether it's protesting herbicides um, being sprayed in the cities, getting engaged with community gardens, starting where you are. And and on a personal level, I think it's so valuable. Like for example, during one of my retreats at the Wolf Conservation Center, I introduced or reintroduced people to some of the so-called weeds. And, and I've, I've heard time and time again how people go home and they're like, oh my gosh, these plants are growing around me. I had no idea. Mm. And they just really fall in love with the land around them in a new way. And a couple of people have said like, yeah, I've told my neighbors to stop spraying and I've shown my neighbors how beautiful these things are. And so I think like this, these grass, this grassroots swell can be incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. So, and, and then, you know, going back to that sense of belonging, it, that heals us too, because we build a relationship where we are rather than trying to just rectify these situations across the globe or which are important too. But I think if we ground ourselves where we are, grow our, grow our own food, you know, um, tend to the land, help to heal the land, plant for the sake, plant for pollinators, create a pollinator garden. That is so important. You know, they're struggling right now. Yeah. Tell us more about what, like, when you say a pollinator garden, like, tell us more. So, you know, you think about one thing I'm, I'm hugely adamant about, for example, is, is 
letting leaves fall, like leaf blowers are like the bane of my existence. I cannot stand them. <laughs> and not only that, it's like no polluting. Um, so and, true. You know, especially gas powered leaf blowers, but they, you know, they blow just anyway, they're just absurd. But uh, queen bumblebees actually hibernate in the wintertime. And so when they come out in spring, they're searching for food. And often they have to travel far to find it these days with all these manicured lawns. And so planting gardens that have a long period of bloom, you know, flowers that bloom early spring through the end of autumn, wildflowers, learn about, you know, your environment and what, what species of bumblebees are, you know, what are the native plants, you know, really planting native plant species. Many of them are so-called weeds that are wild or, or just maybe letting them be there. Don't cut them down. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly do not spray pesticides if you, you know, need to control or manage or, or, or besides and, and being careful of the fertilizers and things that you use, just really learning, you know, what you're doing, what you're cutting down, what you're, what you're planting, how you're planting it. It's, it, it's not more complicated, but it just requires maybe more, a little bit more study, which, and the other thing I feel like that's, that's broken is, is community. Mm-hmm. So if you could have the best practices in the world, if, if your neighbor is spraying and, you know, that's, that's going to affect you too. So if there's any way to build community around that or, or have community goals, you know, where, you, where you're, you're planting, you know, these native species, your neighbor's planting another, you know, that have the, because we have these broken, fractured landscapes, ultimately, in, in many of our neighborhoods. So, but to simplify native plants with a long period of bloom. Mm -hmm. are really beneficial for pollinators. Yeah. And um, what comes up for me is as we start, not start, many of us are in different phases, I would say, of our reconnection, of our remembering. And you talk about, you know, anger as a mobilizing and healing force. And that certainly comes up when you start to really look around and see what goes on. And you start to get really related to these fractured landscapes. And you start to get really related to the toxicity that we poison ourselves with. And just, we can get angry at ourselves for being part of it without really realizing that we were part of it or being unconscious to it. So it just, that certainly comes into play too. And I can't remember, you know, (laughs) I'm thinking about anger and I can't remember what plant you were talking about, maybe dandelion. Dandelion, yeah. But is also related to this manicured lawn thing, right? It's like, oh my gosh, how perfect. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, you know, I I think about the book is broken up to five sections and that's the the third section, which is solar energy. Mm -hmm. Plants that somehow contain the energy of fire or or the sun or body systems that are related to this fiery energy in our bodies. So yeah, dandelion and dandelion is a perfect one, right? Because it's like this bright yellow flower that just keeps coming back, keeps coming back, keeps coming back. Just relentless, has so much vitality. And it's interesting. So in traditional Chinese medicine in particular, many of our organs are related to different emotional states and, and liver is said to be where we store anger. And if you think about all that the liver has to do in the body, this is an organ that can get easily overtaxed and overwhelmed. And, you know, issues in the liver can manifest as, as allergies and, you know, and, and, but of course, you know, irritability, like prickly constitutions, those are all manifestations of being imbalanced as well. And so dandelion is an incredible liver support. 
um, particularly the root. So that's really interesting, right? And then, and I always think about the symbolism of plants. You know, dandelion just keeps coming back with this bright yellow flower all over the place, and people just keep trying to kill these plants on their lawn. And so I think about, you know, our like this is a really good antidote for people who are chronic people pleasers. You know, dandelion just keeps showing up, keeps showing up, keeps showing up. You know, and no matter how often people try to get rid of these what i feel are beautiful flowers and important for pollinators mm-hmm. so yeah again so there's just so many it's just so much symbolism tied up there and in this chapter where i talk about training really starting to train as a professional fighter and how for the people around me that was a very unpopular choice <laughs> a very strange choice to box totally out there yeah and to train as a professional fighter you know at the time women's boxing was really in its infancy and it was in 2000 that I started training really, really seriously. I had gra- I had dabbled in it prior to that in the late 90s, but this was like I was that was my life. I my whole life was centered around boxing and training, and it just really was a place where I, I was like literally fighting to fight because I was broke, living in New York City. All my stuff, everything around me was built around this practice that I just I just knew I needed to pursue. So, you know, and that was a practice that really helped me get a lot of anger out of my body. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's why I really needed it. So, so yeah, so so that chapter sort of explores all of all of these connections between dandelion and and just working through our own anger and how that plant symbolizes and can help support so much of that. Yeah, I'm so glad that you mentioned the boxing because that was the next place I w- wanted to go. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, because it's, you know, for you, it really became the thing. I talk a lot about embodiment, right? And again, like, this is all related, because we're so up here. And so like, anything that just helps us re inhabit ourselves that helps us ground that helps us reconnect to and again, like I, I might call some of these things feminine, right? Like it's not, but it, it's so funny, because like, anger, right? Emotions, though, are feminine. And anger is one of those very purifying, very like that. When I think about the things that I get angry about, I think about like nothing gets me clearer, you know, in a moment Yeah. than anger. And really, you talk a lot about alchemy. And this is where I think these, as we remember, you know, we're we're processing, we're integrating. And that's that kind of inner alchemy that really helps support us, that helps us to reconnect in all of these ways that we've been so fractured and disconnected. And so, you know, just having a a practice or a, whether it's boxing, walking, running, like what could you share more about with respect to your own journey and using boxing in that way? Well, boxing is a really interesting practice. So for one, I I was always, I've always been very drawn to martial arts. And one of the things I say in the book is that I really want to explore the part of myself that was predator instead of prey. Mm. You know, as a woman, I often felt like prey walking around the streets. And I just feel personally that self-defense is, is an important tool for women to learn. So it's a different, it's a different, for me, a different form of embodiment. So while other, I've also explored other movement practices, when I began to learn boxing and explore other martial arts, I, I carried myself differently. 
and people treated me differently. Say more about that. Well, I knew I knew how to fight. <laughs> you know, which I I never I hadn't before. You know, we're often taught, and I think it's changing now for for you know the, the for new generations of women. But you know, my mom's generation. I have less so probably with me, but you know, you're taught to be nice, taught to be good, taught to be, to sublimate these wild, this kind of wildness and to, t- to tone down. You know, I felt like I've throughout my life prior to, to exploring boxing, I just felt like I had to tone down, be nice, you know? And so I hadn't explored that part of myself really. And I, in the, in the wild rose chapter, I, I talk about my experience of sexual assault. And I didn't know how to fight then. And not to say that if I had known it would have changed what had happened to me, but I was fairly helpless in that situation. Mm-hmm. At least I felt I was. And so, you know, not to say that like I could have boxed my way out of it, but it, it gave me a level of confidence in the way of carrying myself that people noticed. Mm-hmm. It's very subtle, you know, but we're ultimately we're animals and we we have these ways of kind of like assessing people through their body language. And we make these quick, you know, assumptions when we're walking down the street, you know. And I think that the way I began to carry myself when I was fighting was was different. Mm-hmm. So it was very empowering for me. It was really empowering to step into a ring where you have to be absolutely present so in that way it's for it was a moving meditation for me Mm -hmm. you're not present if you're if you're thinking too much if you're in your head if you're dwelling on a mistake or if you're projecting yourself into like planning a combination you do in the future you could really literally get your face reconfigured so it's a practice of presence and I, I should say too, I was not a boxing fan. I thought it was really brutal. I still do, you know, but doing it is an entirely different experience. Yeah. So I developed so much confidence, but of course with competitive sports, there's an edge. I don't know if you got to the St. John's Word chapter yet, but I also talk about that whole new pain, no pain, no gain attitude. And because I was a woman, in what was a, you know, like kind of traditionally a man's sport, I felt like I could approve myself that much more. And so I, I, I became too good at moving beyond pain. So for a while, that was a place I needed to get to move beyond my perceived limitations physically. But then I became too good at it. And I had to look at that too. So, you know, there's an edge with movement practice um, when it comes to like competitive sports where it can become empowering and then it almost goes into the edge of being like abusive <laughs> right so yeah um, but I, I had I let it go and what I one of my most powerful moments of it all is when I realized I didn't need it anymore to mm-hmm. feel good where I'd, I'd completed my practice in a way I'm like okay I don't I don't need this anymore I've, I've, I've processed what I needed to process I've done all the training I needed to do, which also helped me become so much more aware of my surroundings. You know, if you think about, you know, martial artists, you have to anticipate your opponent's next move. And so there's this like level of awareness of my environment, actually, that training in martial arts gave me as well. I loved reading about, you know, learning how to soften your gaze and and really like look through your opponent. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's ways that I really could 
see. And and I've always been a little, you know, like, like, there's some like archetype there for me, like some scrappiness, yeah. you know, that really, <laughs> it's really kind of funny to me, because I've often been drawn, even though I too, like, I, I would no sooner watch boxing than I would watch somebody hurt an animal, like, or just it just feels so but there's there's a there's a discipline. And there's also a draw for me around like just the just the body movements. And also the 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 other, I think, awareness practices that come into play that that it is related to martial arts and that there's there's so much wisdom mm-hmm. and and also just really recognizing that there's so many ways to like that's that was another big vehicle for your processing and healing along with all of these other ways that you were supporting yourself this has just been so fun and so delightful to talk more just more in depth with you and to hear more of your story. And I'd love to just maybe finish with anything you feel like, you know, sometimes I ask the question of what does revelation mean to you? And I wondered if you could share with us what what does that word call up in you? What do you think about when I say revelation? I, I think, I mean, I have an image comes to mind really and I, you know, I use this this language in the book of peeling back layers. Mm-hmm. You know, that can be like peeling back layers of social conditioning or old stories or belief systems that I've that I've outgrown that I carried with me. So yeah, I think about like peeling back layers and consistently re- revealing myself when I think about and I think of that word. And I feel like that's a lifelong process. Yeah, it sure is. And is there any question that I haven't asked you that you wish I'd had? Oh, that's an interesting question. Hmm. Not really, but for some reason, one of the chapters of the book comes to mind, which is towards the end, which is the Chaga chapter. And fungi are really interesting. You know, they're very relational. And so I, through that chapter, I explored the relationship between the Chaga and the birch tree. And what mm-hmm. they go through in their partnership. And that, that chapter is all about the balance between intimacy and solitude. And it's interesting because I at first I was I was using I used the word intimacy and independence. And I was like, that independence doesn't even exist really. So I threw that word out. <laughs> and but solitude has always been very important to me as a as a artist, as a creative person, as a writer. And in that chapter, I I explore the relationship between chaga and birch because some people believe that chaga is parasitic and mm. <laughs> and kind of like sucks the energy and out of the birch tree. And some people believe that chaga is actually healing the tree's wounds. It looks kind of like a scab on the birch tree. Yeah. And so that whole chapter is exploring the balance of in, in intimate partnerships, how we ebb and flow in those relationships and and looking to the relationship between chaga and birch symbolically and literally, you know, as we navigate that, I, I really explored how even sometimes when I, you know, talking about, I was talking about a, a situation where my, one of my, my past relationship, my partner was in tears and just grieving and how even like tenderness can smother sometimes, like he needed to grieve, he needed to get that out of this, his system. So um, yeah, I don't know, for some reason that chapter came to mind and I just, I've become very, really fascinated about the relationship between the plants themselves. Because most of the book I write about my relationship with the plants, 
but I'm also, I've become more and more fascinated by the relationship between the plants and how they navigate those relationships in the wild. Yeah, I mean, I'm really struck by that, too, because there's a way that what comes up for me is like, the, we make these assumptions that mm-hmm. that these, you know, relationships are parasitic, or they're this or that. And it's like, it's just that willingness, again, to like, just decenter ourselves and friggin learn something and get curious, you know, <laughs> exactly. it's like, for God's exactly. sake, you know, like, yes, do we have to control it all? And, and I love how you were also pointing to just this continual inquiry, which which for me is the Revelation Project. It's like standing in the paradox between the chaga and the birch tree and just really kind of being in that tension, I think, that, that holds new possibilities if we mm-hmm. just stand there long enough and just wonder, imagine that, and just how much there is in in those types of relationships, and I go back to what you said, which is this this intimacy and solitude. And I love that that totally points to my human design, which is a profile of a 2-4, and opportunist, which is the very social part of me, and the hermit, which is you know the intimate part of me, and the hermit, which loves the solitude. So I think that's a perfect place to just end this interview. It's like, I feel like we just put a a nice little bow on it. But I also, yeah, I also want to invite you to tell our listeners where they can follow you and learn more about you. Yeah. So my website is very easy. It's vanessashakor.com. And uh, I can, I don't know if I should spell it out, but my last name is spelled C-H-A-K-O-U-R. It's not spelled the way it sounds. On Instagram, I'm at vshakor. And I also just started a new newsletter on Substack. So uh, you can subscribe to that. I have the link link to that in my Instagram bio. It's called Earthly Bodies. Oh, I'm going to definitely check that out. Yeah. And do you have another book coming anytime soon? Or are you like... I do. You do? I'm actually a new book right now. Yeah. You're kidding. Okay. That's what I hope for myself too. I hope it's just like, <laughs> I hope it's like the appetite, right? Like it's just the, it's just the appetizer and it's just like, there's more to come. Oh yeah. It does feel like somehow like this is like getting the tap you know, kind of flowing in this process, as you and I have talked about before we jumped on, has just been so, talk about a revelation, like f- giving myself permission to write has just been really a-, a journey in its own in its own right. So I'm so glad to hear that. And what is the topic of the next book? Can you share? Can you share a tiny bit about tiny it? Tiny bit? Okay. You heard it here. Okay. <laughs> Ultimately, it's about embracing our animal nature, the fact that we are, in fact, animals, and just the way the the way that plants have been important to me throughout my life, so have animals. And I've, I've partnered with a lot of wildlife organizations in my work with Sacred Warrior and just in my personal work. So similar to the way I talk about plants and awakening Artemis, I'm going to be looking more through the lens of wild animals in, in the next book. I love that. Well, I know too that so many of our listeners are going to not only love this book, and this book really is a masterpiece. And you know, I don't say that lightly. It's thank you. Like, I cannot wait to keep, I'm about halfway through. I cannot wait to keep going. And I'm so glad you're going to come out with another one. But I really just encourage everybody who's listening to pick up a copy because not only is it just aesthetically beautiful, but I'm somebody who loves to like, 
just journal while I'm reading. And there were so many juicy pieces for me to kind of just quote and journal about and also highlight. There there were some really, there were so many, in fact, like just statements or questions that you make that just really resonated with me and like where I, I actually got emotional, you know? And so I think there's so much talent in your writing. So yes, keep going oh, because that does not always happen. So you have a real way of, I think, reaching through the pages and touching people's hearts. That means the world to me. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, thank you. This has been an absolute honor. So for our listeners, I'll be sure to put all of Vanessa's links in the show notes. And of course, I'll be posting more about this interview. And until next time, more to be revealed. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit us at jointherevelation.com and be sure to download our free gift, subscribe to our mailing list, or leave us a review on iTunes. We thank you for your generous listening. And as always, more to be revealed.